Book Eleven, Part B of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claude Banta. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrieb. Book 11, A.D. 47-48, to Part B, During the Reign of Claudius. Corbulo was actually preparing to encamp on hostile soil when the despatch reached him. Surprised as he was, and many as were the thoughts which crowded on him, thoughts of peril from the emperor, of scorn from the barbarians, of ridicule from the allies, he said nothing but this, happy the Roman generals of old, and gave the signal for retreat. To keep his soldiers free from sloth, he dug a canal of twenty-three miles in length between the Rhine and the Meuse, as a means of avoiding the uncertain perils of the ocean. The emperor, though he had forbidden war, yet granted him triumphal distinctions. Soon afterwards, Curtius Rufus obtained the same honor. He had opened mines in the territory of the Matiasi for working certain veins of silver. The produce was small and soon exhausted. The toil, meanwhile, on the legions was only to a loss, while they dug channels for water and constructed below the surface works which are difficult enough in the open air, worn out by the labor, and knowing that similar hardships were endured in several provinces, the soldiers wrote a secret despatch in the name of the armies, begging the emperor to give in advance triumphal distinctions to one to whom he was about to entrust his forces. Of the birth of Curtius Rufus, whom some affirmed to have been the son of a gladiator, I would not publish a falsehood, while I shrink from telling the truth. On reaching manhood he attached himself to a quaestor, to whom Africa had been allotted, and was walking alone at midday in some unfrequented arcade in the town of Ardrumetum, when he saw a female figure of more than human stature, and heard a voice, Thou, Rufus, art the man who will one day come into this province as proconsul. Raised high in hope by such a presage, he returned to Rome, where, through the lavish expenditure of his friends and his own vigorous ability, he obtained the quaestorship, and subsequently, in competition with well-born candidates, the praetorship, by the vote of the emperor Tiberius, who threw a veil over the discredit of his origin, saying, Curtius Rufus seems to me to be his own ancestor. Afterwards, throughout a long old age of surly psychopancy to those above him, of arrogance to those beneath him, and of moroseness among his equals, he gained the high office of the consulship, triumphal distinctions, and at last the province of Africa. There he died, and so fulfilled the presage of his destiny. At Rome, meanwhile, without any motive then known or subsequently ascertained, Gnaeus Nonius, a Roman knight, was found wearing a sword amid a crowd, 
who were paying their respects to the emperor. The man confessed his own guilt when he was being torn in pieces by torture, but gave up no accomplices, perhaps having none to hide. During the same consulship, Publius Dolabella proposed that a spectacle of gladiators should be annually exhibited at the cost of those who obtained the quaestorship. In our ancestors' days this honor had been a reward of virtue, and every citizen with good qualities to support him was allowed to compete for office. At first there were no distinctions even of age, which prevented a man in his early youth from becoming a consul or a dictator. The quaestors indeed were appointed while the king still ruled, and this the revival by Brutus of the Lex Curiata plainly shows. The consuls retained the power of selecting them till the people bestowed this office as well as others. The first so created were Valerius Potitus and Aemilius Mamercus, sixty-three years after the expulsion of the Tarquins, and they were to be attached to the war department. As the public business increased, two more were appointed to attend to affairs at Rome. This number was again doubled, when to the contributions of Italy was added the tribute of the provinces. Subsequently Sulla, by one of his laws, provided that twenty should be elected to fill up the Senate, to which he had entrusted judicial functions. These functions the knights afterwards recovered, but the quaestorship was obtained without expense, by merit in the candidates, or by the good nature of the electors, till, at Dolabella's suggestion, it was, so to speak, put up to sale. In the consulship of Olus Vitellius and Lucius Vipstanus, the question of filling up the Senate was discussed, and the chief men of Gallia Comata, as it was called, who had long possessed the rights of allies and of Roman citizens, sought the privilege of obtaining public offices at Rome. There was much talk of every kind on the subject, and it was argued before the emperor with vehement opposition. Italy, it was asserted, is not so feeble as to be unable to furnish its own capital with a senate. Once our native-born citizens sufficed for peoples of our own kin, and we are by no means dissatisfied with the Rome of the past. To this day we cite examples, which under our old customs the Roman character exhibited as to valor and renown. It is a small thing that the Veneti and Insubres have already burst into the Senate House, unless a mob of foreigners, a troop of captives, so to say, is now forced upon us. What distinctions will be left for the remnants of our noble houses, or for any impoverished senators from Latium? Every place will be crowded with these millionaires, whose ancestors of the second and third generations, at the head of hostile tribes, destroyed our armies with fire and sword, and actually besieged the divine Julius at Elysia. These are recent memories. What if there were to rise up the remembrance of those who fell in Rome's citadel, and at her altar by the hands of these same barbarians? Let them enjoy indeed the title of citizens, but let them not vulgarize the distinctions of the Senate and the honors of office. These and like arguments failed to impress the emperor. 
he at once addressed himself to answer them, and thus harangued the assembled senate. My ancestors, the most ancient of whom was made at once a citizen and a noble of Rome, encourage me to govern by the same policy of transferring to this city all conspicuous merit wherever found. And indeed I know as facts that the Julii came from Alba, the Carunsani from Camerium, the Porci from Tusculum, and not to inquire too minutely into the past, that new members have been brought into the Senate from Etruria and Lucania, and the whole of Italy, that Italy itself was at last extended to the Alps, to the end that not only single persons, but entire countries and tribes might be united under our name. We had unshaken peace at home, we prospered in all our foreign relations, in the days when Italy beyond the Po was admitted to share our citizenship, and when, enrolling in our ranks the most vigorous of the provincials, under color of settling our allegiance throughout the world, we recruited our exhausted empire. Are we sorry that the Balbi came to us from Spain, and other men not less illustrious from Narbonne Gaul? Their descendants are still among us, and do not yield to us in patriotism. What was the ruin of Sparta and Athens but this, that mighty as they were in war, they spurned from them as aliens those whom they had conquered? Our founder Romulus, on the other hand, was so wise that he fought as enemies and then hailed as fellow-citizens several nations on the very same day. Strangers have reigned over us. That freedmen's sons should be entrusted with public offices is not, as many wrongly think, a sudden innovation, but was a common practice in the old commonwealth. But it will be said we have fought with the Senones. I suppose that the Volsi and Achaea never stood in array against us. Our city was taken by the Gauls. Well, we also gave hostages to the Etruscans, and passed under the yoke of the Samnites. On the whole, if you review all our wars, never has one been finished in a shorter time than that with the Gauls. Thenceforth they have preserved an unbroken and loyal peace, united, as they now are with us by manners, education, and intermarriage, let them bring us their gold and their wealth, rather than enjoy it in isolation. Everything, senators, which we now hold to be of the highest antiquity was once new. Plebeian magistrates came after patrician, Latin magistrates after plebeian, magistrates of other Italian peoples after Latin. This practice, too, will establish itself, and what we are this day justifying by precedence will be itself a precedent. The emperor's speech was followed by a decree of the senate, and the Aedui were the first to obtain the rights of becoming senators at Rome. This compliment was paid to their ancient alliance, and to the fact that they alone of the Gauls cling to the name of brothers of the Roman people. About the same time the emperor enrolled in the ranks the patricians, such senators as were of the oldest families, and such as had had distinguished ancestors. There were now but scanty relics of the greater houses of Romulus, and of the lesser houses of Lucius Brutus, as they had been called, and those who were exhausted which the dictator Caesar by the Cassian law 
and the emperor Augustus by the Sanian law had chosen into their place. These acts, as being welcome to the state, were undertaken with hearty gladness by the imperial censor, anxiously considering how he was to rid the senate of men of notorious infamy, he preferred a gentle method recently devised to one which accorded with the sternness of antiquity, and advised each to examine his own case and seek the privilege of laying aside his rank. Permission, he said, would be readily obtained. He would publish in the same list those who had been expelled and those who had been allowed to retire, that by this confounding together of the decision of the censors, and the modesty of voluntary resignation, the disgrace might be softened. For this, the consul Vipstanus moved that Claudius should be called father of the senate. The title of father of the country, had he argued, been indiscriminately bestowed. New services ought to be recognized by unusual titles. The emperor, however, himself stopped the consul's flattery as extravagant, he closed the lustrum, the census for which gave a total of 5,984,072 citizens. Then, too, ended his blindness as to his domestic affairs. He was soon compelled to notice and punish his wife's infamies, till he afterwards craved passionately for an unhallowed union. Messalina, now grown wary of the very facility of her adulteries, was rushing into strange excesses, when even Silius, either through some fatal infatuation, or because he imagined that amid the dangers which hung over him, danger itself was the best safety, urged the breaking off of all concealment. They were not, he said, in such an extremity as to have to wait for the emperor's old age. Harmless measures were for the innocent, Crime, once exposed, had no refuge but in audacity. They had accomplices in all who feared the same fate. For himself, as he had neither wife nor child, he was ready to marry and to adopt Britannicus. Messalina would have the same power as before, with the additional advantage of a quiet mind, if only they took Claudius by surprise, who, though unsuspicious of treachery, was hasty in his wrath. The suggestion was coldly received, not because the lady loved her husband, but from a fear that Silius, after attaining his highest hopes, would spurn an adulteress, and soon estimate at its true value the crime, which in the midst of peril he had approved. But she craved the name of wife for the sake of the monstrous infamy, that last source of delight to the reckless, she waited only till Claudius set out for Ostia to perform a sacrifice, and then celebrated all the solemnities of marriage. I am well aware that it will seem a fable that any persons in the world could have been so obtuse in a city which knows everything and hides nothing, much more that these persons should have been a consul-elect and the emperor's wife, that on an appointed day before witnesses duly summoned, they should have come together as if for the purpose of legitimate marriage, that she should have listened to the words of the bridgegroom's friends, should have sacrificed to the gods, have taken her place among a company of guests, have lavished her kisses and caresses, 
and passed the night in the freedom which marriage permits. But this is no story to excite wonder. I do but relate what I have heard, and what our fathers have recorded. The emperor's court indeed shuddered. Its powerful personages, especially the men who had much to fear from a revolution, from secret whisperings they passed to loud complaints, when an actor, they said, imprudently thrust himself into the imperial chamber, it certainly brought scandal to the state, but we were a long way from ruin. Now a young noble of stately beauty, of vigorous intellect, with the near prospect of the consulship, is preparing himself for a loftier ambition. There can be no secret about what is to follow such a marriage. Doubtless there was thrill of alarm, when they thought of the apathy of Claudius, of his devotion to his wife, and of the many murders perpetrated at Messalina's bidding. On the other hand, the very good nature of the emperor inspired confident hope that if they could overpower him by the enormity of the charge, she might be condemned and crushed before she was accused. The critical point was this, that he should not hear her defense, and that his ears should be shut even against her confession. At first Callistus, of whom I have already spoken in connection with the assassination of Caius Caesar, Narcissus, who had contrived the death of Appius, and Paulus, who was then in the height of favor, debated whether they might not, by secret threats, turn Messalina from her passion for Silius, while they concealed all else. Then, Fearing that they would be themselves involved in ruin, they abandoned the idea. Paulus, out of cowardice, and Callistus, from his experience in a former court, remembering that prudent rather than vigorous counsels ensure the maintenance of power, Narcissus persevered, only so far changing his plan as not to make her aware beforehand by a single word what was the charge or who was the accuser. Then he eagerly watched his opportunity, and as the emperor lingered long at Ostia, he sought two of the mistresses to whose society Claudius was especially partial, and by gifts, by promises, by dwelling on the power increased by the wife's fall, he induced them to undertake the work of the informer. On this Calpurnia, that was the woman's name, as soon as she was allowed a private interview, threw herself at the emperor's knees, crying out that Messalina was married to Silius. At the same time she asked Cleopatra, who was standing near her and waiting for the question whether she knew it. Cleopatra, nodding assent, she begged that Narcissus might be summoned. Narcissus entreated pardon for the past, for having concealed the scandal while confined to a Vettius or a Plautius. Even now, he said, he would not make charges of adultery, and seemed to be asking back the palace, the slaves, and the other belongings of imperial rank. These Silius might enjoy, only he must give back the wife and annul the act of marriage. Do you know, he said, of your divorce? The people, the army, the senate saw the marriage of Silius. Act at once, or the new husband is master of Rome. Claudius then summoned all his most powerful friends. First he questioned Turianus, superintendent of the corn market. Next, Lucius Geta, who commanded the Praetorians. 
when they confessed the truth, the whole company clamored in concert that he must go to the camp, must assure himself of the praetorian cohorts, must think of safety before he thought of vengeance. It is quite certain that Claudius was so overwhelmed by terror that he repeatedly asked whether he was indeed in possession of the empire, whether Silius was still a subject. Messalina, meanwhile, more wildly profligate than ever, was celebrating in mid-autumn a representation of the vintage in her new home. The presses were being trodden, the vats were overflowing, women girt with skins were dancing, as bacchanals dance in their worship or their frenzy. Messalina with flowing hair shook the Tharsis, and Silius at her side, crowned with ivy and wearing the buskin, moved his said to some lascivious chorus. It is said that one Vettius Valens climbed a very lofty tree in sport, and when they asked him what he saw, replied, a terrible storm from Ostia. Possibly such appearance had begun, possibly a word dropped by chance became a prophecy. Meanwhile, no mere rumor, but messengers from all parts brought the news that everything was known to Claudius, and that he was coming bent on vengeance. Messalina upon this went to the gardens of Lucullus, Silius to conceal his fear to his business in the forum. The other guests were flying in all directions, when the centurions appeared and put every one in irons where they found them, either in public streets or in hiding. Messalina, though her peril took away all power of thought, promptly resolved to meet and face her husband, a course in which she had often found safety, while she bade Britannicus and Octavia hasten to embrace their father. She besought Vibidia, the eldest of the Vestal virgins, to demand audience of the supreme pontiff, and to beg for mercy. Meanwhile, with only three companions, so lonely did she find herself in a moment, she traversed the whole length of the city, and, mounting on a cart used to remove garden refuse, proceeded along the road to Ostia, not pitied, so overpoweringly hideous were her crimes, by a single person. There was equal alarm on the emperor's side. They put but little trust in Geta, who commanded the praetorians, a man swayed with good cause to good or evil. Narcissus, in concert with others who dreaded the same fate, declared that the only hope of safety for the emperor lay in his transferring for that one day the command of the soldiers to one of the freedmen, and he offered to undertake it himself, and that Claudius might not be induced by Lucius Vitellius and Largus Asina to repent, while he was riding into Rome, he asked and took a seat in the emperor's carriage. It was currently reported in after times that while the emperor broke into contradictory exclamations, now inveighing against the infamies of his wife, and now returning in thought to the remembrance of his love and of his infant children, Vitellius said nothing but, What audacity! What wickedness! Narcissus indeed kept pressing him to clear up his ambiguities, and let the truth be known. But still he could not prevail upon him to utter anything that was not vague and susceptible of any meeting which might be put on it, or upon larger Asina to do anything but follow his example. 
and now Messalina had presented herself, and was insisting that the emperor should listen to the mother of Octavia and Britannicus, when the accuser roared out at her the story of Silius and her marriage. At the same moment, to draw Caesar's eye away from her, he handed him some papers which detailed her debaucheries. Soon afterwards, as he was entering Rome, his children by Messalina were to have shown themselves, had not Narcissus ordered their removal. Vibidia he could not repel, when, with a vehemently indignant appeal, she demanded that a wife should not be given up to death without a hearing. So Narcissus replied that the emperor would hear her, and that she should have an opportunity of disproving the charge. Meanwhile the Holy Virgin was to go and discharge her sacred duties. All throughout Claudius preserved a strange silence. Vitellius seemed unconscious. Everything was under the freedman's control. By his order, the paramour's house was thrown open, and the emperor conducted thither. First, on the threshold, he pointed out the statue of Silius's father, which a decree of the senate had directed to be destroyed. Next, how the heirlooms of the Neros and the Drusi had been degraded into the price of infamy. Then he led the emperor, furious and bursting out in menace, into the camp where the soldiers were purposely assembled. Claudius spoke to them a few words at the dictation of Narcissus. Shame, indeed, checked the utterance even of a righteous anger. Instantly there came a shout from the cohorts, demanding the names of the culprits and their punishment. Brought before the tribunal, Silius sought neither defense nor delay, but begged that his death might be hastened. A like courage made several knights of the first rank desirous of a speedy doom. Titius Proclus, who had been appointed to watch Messalina, and was now offering his evidence, Vettius Valens, who confessed his guilt, together with Pompeius Ubricus and Sophleus Strogus from among her accomplices, were ordered to execution. Decius Calpurianus, too, commander of the watch, Sulpicius Rufus, who had the charge of the games, and Juncus Virgilianus, a senator, were similarly punished. Menester alone occasioned a pause. Rending off his clothes, he insisted on Claudius looking at the scars of his stripes, and remembering his words when he surrendered himself without reserve to Messalina's bidding. The guilt of others had been the result of presents or of large promises, his of necessity. He must have been the first victim had Silius obtained empire. Caesar was touched by his appeal and inclined to mercy, but his freedmen prevailed on him, not to let any indulgence be shown to a playa when so many illustrious citizens had fallen. It mattered not whether he had sinned so greatly from choice or compulsion. Even the defense of Traulus Montanus, a Roman knight, was not admitted. A young man of pure life, yet of singular beauty, he had been summoned and dismissed within the space of one night by Messalina, who was equally capricious in her passions and dislikes. In the case of Suilius Caesonius and Plautius Laterinus, the extreme penalty was remitted. The latter was saved by the distinguished services of his uncle, the former by his very vices, having amid that abominable throng submitted to the worst degradation. Messalina, meanwhile, 
in the gardens of Lucullus was struggling for life, and writing letters of entreaty, as she alternated between hope or fury. In her extremity it was her pride alone which forsook her. Had not Narcissus hurried on her death, ruin would have recoiled on her accuser. Claudius had returned home to an early banquet. Then, in softened mood, when the wine had warmed him, he bade someone go and tell the poor creature, this is the word they say he used, to come the morrow and plead her cause. Hearing this, seeing, too, that his wrath was subsiding, and his passion returning, and, fearing in the event of delay, the effect of approaching night and conjugal recollections, Narcissus rushed out, and ordered the centurions and the tribunes who were on guard to accomplish the deed of blood. Such, he said, was the emperor's bidding. Evidus, one of the freedmen, was appointed to watch and complete the affair. Hurrying on before with all speed to the gardens, he found Messalina stretched upon the ground, while by her side sat Lepida, her mother, who, though estranged from her daughter in prosperity, was now melted to pity by her inevitable doom, and urged her not to wait for the executioner. Life, she said, was over. All that could be looked for was honor in death. But in that heart, utterly corrupted by profligacy, nothing noble remained. She still prolonged her tears and idle complaints, till the gates were forced opened by the rush of the newcomers, and there stood at her side the tribune, sternly silent, and the freedmen, overwhelming her with the copious insults of a servile tongue. Then, for the first time, she understood her fate, and put her hand to a dagger. In her terror she was applying it ineffectually to her throat and breast, when a blow from the tribune drove it through her. Her body was given up to her mother, Claudius was still at the banquet when they told him that Messalina was dead, without mentioning whether it was by her own or another's hand, nor did he ask the question, but called for the cup and finished his repast as usual. During the days which followed, he showed no sign of hatred or joy or anger or sadness, in a word of any human emotion, either when he looked on her triumphant accusers or on her weeping children, the senate assisted his forgetfulness by decreeing that her name and her statues should be removed from all places public or private to narcissus were voted the decorations of the quaestorship a mere trifle to the pride of one who rose in the height of his power above paulus and callistus end of book eleven